And also we'll get into the UFO thing a little bit probably because I bet you feel pretty vindicated right now. Yeah, you gotta feel vindicated right now. I'm gonna say it, say it right now. Wi-Fi technology came from the UFOs. What's up? I'm Tyler Sweat. Cue the dramatic music. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Ready to get weird and learn some cool shit about emerging tech and the government? I thought so. Let's fucking go. This is a Soul Fire production. Get ready for Saved Rounds, the all-new, all-quiet segment with my buddy and Second Front CTO, Enrique Odi, Delivering short, but intellectually sweet takes on the latest defense tech news that'll keep you informed, make you sound like the smartest nerd in the room. Hey everybody, uh, your host Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. Uh, really excited today. Um, got a friend, mentor, advisor, sort of extraordinaire all um, from the cyber industry, investing industry, um, and sort of everything. So we've got Ron Gula today. Um, from I'm, Gula. I'm excited too. Yeah, Gula Tech Adventures. Um, so one, thank you. And then two, just for the listeners, can you, in the, I don't know how you'd summarize your career, <laughs> but a, a little high, high level sort of some of those big accomplishments. Cause I think people, people see you now, they understand the videos, they understand what you're doing now. And they're like, oh yeah, no, Ron, Ron does cyber investing. You're like, yes, but Ron has done a lot of other stuff too. <laughs> Thanks man. Glad to be here. Glad to be working with you guys. You guys are defending the war fighters, making science fiction a reality. It's, it's great stuff. So, uh, my background, real quick, uh, I was a big UFO believer, so I figured try to go in the Air Force, be a pilot. That didn't work out. Try to go to the NSA and fly, find UFOs. That didn't work out either. So I got into computer security in like the mid-90s. Nobody called it cyber. It was information operations, that sort of thing. But I got to do pen testing on lots of sensitive networks, and that was a lot of fun and worked with a lot of great people. But that set me up to do almost 30 years in cyber. Uh, did a bunch of network intrusion detection work did uh, Tenable Network Securities, co-founder, CEO, C CTO that for, you know, almost a uh, you know, decade and a half, which was a lot of fun. And that set us up to do Gula Tech Adventures, which we do investing, philanthropy, and stuff like this, educating the public all about cybersecurity. Yeah, and I think, I think one of the things that I'll be curious to sort of unpack as we talk through today is sort of how you've seen the world change as you've been moving through those different lens, right? So you've inside the government, doing some highly technical, highly sort of tactical security work, and then building a giant cybersecurity company, right, all the way through IPO, and it's still rocking and rolling, and then sort of taking a different vantage point and looking at what's coming up next, both from a human capital standpoint, how are we educating that community, and then also from a corporate sort of entity, hey, what problem, you know, what, what solution are we bringing um, and also we'll get into the UFO thing a little bit probably because I bet you feel pretty vindicated right now. Yeah, you got to feel vindicated right now. I'm going to say it, say it right now. Wi-Fi technology came from the UFOs, right? That's absolutely. But no, if you think about it, like, like late 90s computer security, you know, what did people do back then? A big deal back then was I have a wireless network, right? I, I'm going to go from Ethernet to wireless. I had the PC MCIA cards, put them in my laptop, and you could only get an hour of battery life and stuff like that. Now... You know, you guys are doing stuff at Second Front that was basically illegal when I was at the NSA. Like, let's take DOD data, put it on somebody else's server, and bring it to the warfighter, right? Like, that's 
basically science fiction. You can almost hear, uh, you know, like a, a heavy weather or, or, you know, Silicon uh, Diamond Age, you know, that kind of stuff talking about, oh, the DoD server was rendered it with this kind of cryptography, which allowed the soldier paratrooping in with his virtual reality, augmented reality going. Yeah, that's kind of what, what's going on. But, uh, you know, just where we're at right now with AI and with uh, the, the explosion of all this content that's out there, I, I, I think anybody who's trying to predict the future has no idea. Has absolutely no idea. Because AI predictions for the last 20, 25 years has been AI sucks. All of a sudden, AI is cool. So we'll see if it's legal, you know, just, just in uh, one or two elections from now. Yeah, so it's interesting from a regulatory standpoint, and then also just from a, think about sort of the consumption, sort of the human brain, the understanding of, you know, what's real, what's right, what's fact. Um, where are you seeing sort of folks figure out that calibration between signal and noise? And are you seeing solutions coming in that are starting to maybe contribute to that and that subset of the market coming? Or is it still about sort of pumping out volume and like a dopamine hit? Yeah, so the technology is exploding so fast across everything, right? Cyber, AI, just advances in, in, in new type. A Apple just announced they're wearable, you know, that sort of thing. So you have this sort of issue of you've got fear of missing out. Like anybody who's a tech professional, whether they're in their, their end of their career, the start of their career, how do you keep up with everything? And then you have people who have the burnout factor. It's like, how many conferences can I go to? How many podcasts can I listen to? How many books can I read? You know, how do I stay up with everything, right? But then the reality of what's true, what should I do, what's common knowledge, what's best practice, it's so hard to know that, right? Even in cybersecurity, we have different big things. We have different standards. We, we don't, Rick Howard's got a book out called Cyber First Principles. We don't, his point is we don't have a set of first principles. And, and even if we think about confidentiality, integrity, and availability, which I think is a good baseline, it's kind of hard for the common person to apply that because we don't teach those things in school. You've got a, a rapidly to your point about the regulatory landscape using AI as a perfect example. Um, like I've joked before, right? When I was at Calypso before Second Front, I spent way more time than I'm proud of sort of walking the halls of the Hill trying to convince Congress that, hey, we need to get ahead of adversarial machine learning, the art of the possible with, you know, they weren't necessarily deep fakes back then, but it was like, hey, we can do all of this stuff, data poisoning, all, and they're like, oh, don't worry about it. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. Now it's a huge deal. We're like five to 10 years behind the curve. So as you think about an understanding of from the legislative and sort of the executive branches and also inability to govern in a timely manner, what are you expecting to see sort of over the next 12 to 24 months, recognizing that tech is going to continue to accelerate? What's that look like? The public's becoming very, very aware, thanks to the Chinese balloon, thanks to the TikTok discussion, thanks to things like the government, you know, trying to ban Huawei, trying to ban, you know, DJI drones, that, that sort of thing. But I think where this is going to go, if you look at the national cybersecurity strategy, where they're trying to sprinkle cyber responsibility through the entire ecosystem, you know, the coder all the way to the consumer, you know, that sort of thing, it's going to manifest really interesting. We, we've all seen made in China stamps on things, but what about data hosted in China? Like that's probably a label the people don't want to put on it, but the reality, if it's there, it's interesting. Now, what about AI trained in China? What about, you know, so how do you get, how do you know these things as a consumer? Where is this data coming from? Of course, with AI, of course, it's all about the data, right? How did it get trained? Um, if I've got a bunch of bozos who are using it and giving it bad data, did, did it drift after that? And of course, if I'm, 
you know, people, if you've read, uh, uh, oh my God, Everybody Lies, for example, that book, you know, we all know that we tell Google our dark, darkest secrets, right? Not our priests, not our spouses. We tell Google that. And apparently with ChatGPT, it's even worse. It's like, hey, take this sensitive source code and make it better, right? So what does that mean from a legislation point of view? You know, Congress is always caught up at the last second. And that's, that's kind of being kind, because usually you don't have a body of people who are out there who are, you know, C programmers and network engineers and that sort of thing. But I think the population really cares a lot about this. So they're, they're, they're getting smart. There's an AI commission now. There's a China commission. We actually had, this is the first year we had the office of the national cybersecurity director. So there's a lot of positive momentum going on, but man, when I go to DC and I introduce myself as a cyber investor, I'm, people kind of go, what's that? So it's, it, there's still a gap. So when you talk about, you know, data hosted in or model trained, and it's a really interesting concept. And I kind of want to click into that because I don't think you're wrong, right? I think that's a really unique way to look at it. Does the world become smaller? And does that sort of put us at odds with what I think is sort of like a rose colored glasses view on globalization? Um, and what does that end up? What does that end up looking like? So I think right now, one of the biggest geopolitical issues with AI that people aren't, aren't talking about is that if I'm choosing to outsource my content creation, uh, I'm glad you're not outsourcing your content creation. We're creating your content right here, right? But let's say I'm, I'm outsourcing that, whether it's the news and I'm getting, let's just say, cheaper labor than the US, right? Pick whatever uh, uh, analogy you want, their example you want. And I, now I don't have to go to those countries and I can just go to an AI and, and, and do it. And maybe it's just as good, if not better. That's going to have an interesting effect on that. Now, most of what I've seen so far is that it's teams of humans and AIs that are outperforming just humans or just, just AI people. But the question is, how long is that, is that going to go on? I have a personal goal right now to create a whole Google Tech Adventures video for my, my show where everything is done from, from tools. And I'm just controlling the tools. I've already made myself talk, which sounds kind of a weird thing to do. But once you can do that, you can just kind of unleash yourself and, and, and go forth and do that. Now, what happens long-term, we'll see. Like I said before about AI, you know, if I'm buying an AI, how do I know what I, what I got in the model, right? And then if I'm using it, I have a bunch of, let's just say I've got a bunch of clowns using it and they're constantly telling it bad things, like don't believe that. How do I know it hasn't changed? And again, how do you know what people are sending to that is if it's sensitive or not? So these are some of the big things that are going on right now. Yeah, and I think, I think the proxy aspect of it will i mean history is cyclical right like everything we're seeing now we've seen before it's just been dressed a little bit differently and called something different i think you end up in this really interesting proxy war where you know war might be the wrong term a proxy sort of conflict um where you know we put a hard line around china you're like okay great that's easy that's the layup for congress then when we start to talk about hey, the Chinese have staked these 15 African countries, these six South American countries, and these seven East Asian countries to the point that those countries have defaulted on a debt. China now owns their infrastructure. They're effectively controlling the country. Are they on the list of places we can't host and trust? Are they not? Does that mean we're now isolating and sort of seeding? And I think that is a really interesting sort of juxtaposition of intellectual and geopolitical challenges that I'm not sure if folks are, are really prepared to wrap their heads around. And a good, a good example about how that manifests kind of in, in my world, we have a company right now called Shard Secure, which uses file sharding 
if you think of like how a, a RAID disk drive uh, carve up a file and put it on multiple disks for reliability, performance, whatever, different models, that you can do the same thing across the cloud. And you know, you might think about, hey, I'm leaving Amazon and going to Google, or leaving Google going to Amazon. You know, those are real things that happen out there. But maybe I have to quickly leave Poland, right? Maybe I have to quickly leave uh, an African country. Maybe I have to quickly leave the Middle East. And if people aren't engineering things like that today, then that's they're, they're not ready for the world of tomorrow because we have all sorts of potential political instability of of overnight, you know banning a country because we find out their human rights violations or they're, they're tight with China. And, you know, when, we, when you ban a country, we're seeing it right now with Russia, there's still American businesses doing business with Russia today. They can't decouple that. So it's, it's an interesting world we live in. Forget who said it. And, um, I think it was Dave Ferris from Interos said, Hey, you know, before COVID, America didn't really understand what a supply chain was. You know, they'd heard about it maybe in B school or in some class somewhere. And they weren't really sure. And now all of a sudden they were like acutely aware of what it was. But to your point, sort of understanding second, sort of third tier suppliers, and also like where's your infrastructure actually running out of? An alarming amount of folks are unsure of that. And, you know, one of the conversations you and I have had sort of ad nauseum, which goes probably as a, a rallying cry to some of the founders or early teams watching this now is as you're building, right, having some of those principles of mobility and sort of horizontal mobility versus sort of vertical bearing into specific cloud native services or, you know, a specific infrastructure stack because there's going to be either A, the example we use, sort of a geopolitical event that's going to force you to increase your mobility or be the simple one. Some customer is going to be opinionated and say, I would like you to not be on cloud a or rack B. I need you over here. Are you seeing as you're sort of looking at new companies coming in and you're seeing, you know, hundreds of different opportunities come across this. Are you seeing more folks taking a sort of infrastructure agnostic is probably a strong word, but less opinionated and more sort of on that horizontal integration, or are you still seeing folks pretty wedded in, tied into specific infrastructure? We're, we're seeing a couple different things. So a lot of times if somebody has a data center solution, that almost means like it's the equivalent of an on-premise solution. And when you hear that, you're like, good, I got, I've got flexibility. I can run Kubernetes in the cloud. I can run Kubernetes on-prem. But sometimes what that also means is they didn't take advantage of all the CPUs and, and, and APIs that are bespoke to Amazon or Google or Azure, right? So if I hard code my AI models with Azure's chips and not Amazon's chips, I might be locked into that, right? So it's actually, you have to, it's almost like having to code for like four operating systems, then one to be truly cloud independent and, and, and have that not vendor lock-in, so to speak. But it's a weird time. Like a lot of these companies also get free Azure credits. They get free Amazon credits. So it's like, it's, it's a really interesting uh, thing. And of course, everybody wants to get towards profitability today, which ends up costing more money to code profitable uh, you know, solutions to run on these things. And it still goes back to the fact that when we all went to school, you know, we learned that you know, cars might be made in America, it might be better for the economy, but maybe Japanese cars can get built here. We didn't learn anything about how the cloud works. We didn't learn how, you know, that there was gonna be these great struggles between Amazon and Google and Microsoft. And by the way, some of that reflects Apple competing with Microsoft and 
what does this mean for an enterprise and for information in these first principles? It's really, really interesting right now trying to keep track of all that. Yeah, and then I'll ask you to put sort of the tenable hat back on a little bit and sort of juxtapose it with that. You, know, you talk about sort of not learning about the cloud and seeing sort of the rise of, you know, where you can either get sort of locked in because of, you know, CUDA is a great example with NVIDIA. Like if you leverage that, you're running on an NVIDIA stack whether you want to or not. Um, looking at tech debt of folks who maybe started out building a product five years ago, 10 years ago, and now are seeing sort of a rise of desired flexibility. JWCC in TUD is a great example where sort of it's everybody and it's essentially like a cloud marketplace. Um, how are you seeing sort of CISOs or CTOs or you know VPs of engineering thinking about sort of that tech debt where that product very mature, very robust product is built and sort of running now and a customer who's expecting it to be way easier than it probably actually is to get into on-prem or multi-cloud or some different configuration. So just looking at that from, from Tenable, when we started in the early 2000s versus where Tenable's at right now, right? So they have Tenable One now, unifies is everything. And when I say everything, it's like it audits the cloud, it audits SaaS, it audits your, your, your endpoints, your infrastructure, your Kubernetes, your, your custom websites, your um, the malware thing. That, I mean, that's a lot. And if you think about what is security, what does it mean to know? And that means a lot of different things to a lot of different, different people. I think one of the most telling things that I had, a, I had a Tenable customer talk with me the other day and they had uh, a lot of their typical source code developers. Let's make sure our CICD pipelines are clean. Like a lot of stuff you guys focus on, right? These are your commercial customer and whatnot. And then they actually discovered that there was a huge effort to do no code coding on top of ServiceNow, on top of Salesforce. And the question is, is like, okay, is that better? But it was completely outside of this other process. So it might've been secure by default, but it was done without any knowledge of the, the, the security team. And that was basically a good analogy for Tenable because our entire career at Tenable, we kept coming up with new things to audit before it became cool or a requirement to audit them. And, and the world's just coming up with more stuff to audit faster and faster and faster. As you look to the future, and you see sort of changing regulatory landscape. We talked about, you know, we started with UFOs. The fact that that's hitting the news and no one's really freaking out about it is, tells you the state of America right now. Um, what are you most excited about? And sort of what are you most concerned about as you look at this next generation of founders, of NUCOs coming through, recognizing, like I said, sort of the changing nature of the world and the regulatory standpoint? Yeah, so I'm hoping that the war in Ukraine will be over soon, right? I mean, I, I, I really want that. And I want the nation of Ukraine to join the West and help create more, you know, more cyber solutions, right? They could be just as powerful, if not uh, more powerful than what you see coming out of Israel, right? Now, for the, for the companies here in the US, what I'm really, really hoping for is that we have this whole new generation of people who are learning about AI, learning about the first principles of cyber as they get in there, and they're gonna come up with new, fresh ideas. Because, you know, I went to RSA this year, the biggest, most crowded RSA I've ever seen. But what's happened is to do cyber well, you have to have these niche products, right? There's literally products who do like authentication for APIs just to Oracle, for example, right? And there's like a couple companies that do that, right? And it becomes very niche. And to describe what you do takes a PowerPoint and it's, it's hard for the average person to do that. So you have this constant battle of consolidation things being delivered through a service, which is a new type of consolidation, right? I can 
I don't have to buy five companies and roll them up. I can just buy their products, what they do through like a, you know, like an e-centire, uh, Ponderance or something like that. Um, so I think the world's going to be really, really interesting as we struggle for people and budget to do this. I'm looking for solutions that help make easy people who are less sophisticated do more things with what they have. And a lot of that's in our portfolio right now, but I think there's going to be another wave of that coming. That's a good answer. All right, what concerns you? Look at, look at all of it. Look at yeah. where we are on the war, the rise of like actual near-peer competitors, real or perceived, sort of lagging legislation. So a couple of things concern me. So cyber is so complex. It is so hard to describe. It's so hard to appeal to, to, to people. Um, I love the military sort of analogies with cyber, but that's a turnoff for some folks, right? So if you're trying to embrace an entire culture, we try to talk about it in terms of data care, right? So if you're a board and you have nothing to do with cyber, every company, I don't care who has a digital footprint, right? You need to protect it. And if you're a kid and you're trying to figure out what do I want to do with my life, Maybe being a malware reverse engineer is not the first thing that comes out of their mouth, but there is a whole wide range of IT abilities. We call it data care because I think it's much more like healthcare, where if you think about uh, nursing, you think about life insurance, you think about wellness, you don't have to be a brain surgeon, right? You don't have to be like a cancer genealogist to like do that kind of stuff. And I kind of do put the reverse engineers and the CISO with 30 years of experience on that brain surgery thing. That's not the image... I think we could all aspire to that, but that's not the image of what everybody does in cyber. So I want to make sure that that is out there. I am a bit worried that AI will be a freezing function on tech. And if you haven't heard this theory, basically, you know, maybe the AI is a new calculator and we're just going to get dumber with doing math, but it won't matter because it, it, it doing math is not, is not thinking. But the reality is most innovation comes from a bunch of people working on a problem and then one or two of those people going, aha, I got a better way of doing this, right? If we're having more people using that as a tool and not coming up with new ways, it might have more of a long-term freeze effect on us than, than do it. So I am worried about that a bit. So going back to your sort of where the model's trained, where's the data hosted, and to sort of put a TikTok lens in that scenario, you essentially are seeding control of sort of that like intellectual 20% of like ever revolutionary ideas. I mean, in theory, to an adversary without even knowing. Could be, I mean, there's a lot of data sets that uh, we already know, OPM breach, you know, China has that. What could you do with that? And that's the thing is we start coming up with these, what could you do with that? Right now what they're probably doing is looking for the right people to target to, you know, go work for them and not for us and that kind of thing. But having an AI choose that kind of stuff. My issue with the AI, and this happens a lot with cybersecurity, like we'll get pitched a network anomaly based detection system. And look at your flow, your packets and say, you know, today Tyler did something that he downloaded a lot more than, than before. Is that something I should look at? I, I don't know. With these AIs, the schema is so big. You actually don't know what they're being trained on and what is going in there. So this concept of what can I prove that this thing's searching for is a hard problem to, uh, to, to do. And I know a lot of this because I get pitched these, oh, we use a cyber uh, AI uh, algorithm to detect malware. Oh, I got like 50 questions for you, right? Because there's a lot of companies that did this already and didn't do that well or didn't got to a certain point where these other models had to, had to get come in. So it's going to be an interesting future to try to figure all that out. Last two questions. Um, this one's sort of a wild card. Um, UFOs are real. <laughs> recognizing sort of, you know, we're, we're coming on another sort of election. We're going to have... New folks coming in, sort of setting policy, setting visions. You were sort of king for a day, right? 
you get to pick one sort of policy change, one regulatory change, snap your fingers, and it actually happens. Not that it's written, but it actually enacted. What do you focus on? What do you pick? All right. So the one that I'm going to get beat up for when people hear this is, so we have a problem with elections in the country, right? So we have one problem of participation. Uh, we have two second problem of uh, people don't believe the results, right? So there's not a lot of evidence that votes got flipped in this last election. There's a lot of evidence that there was uh, social influence, uh, you know, from Russia, from China, and, and that. So I think one of the things would be interesting to talk about would be to be transparent elections. I want to know who you voted for. And my argument for this is that if, if I know who you voted for, you know who I voted for, that, um, you know, we get a little bit of confidence that our votes were, were there. But two, this country is an open country. We have a tolerant country. We're, we're supposed to be very accepting of people's religious views sexual views. Um, we can't discriminate. We can't do this. I think it would help bring the country together more than it would drive us apart. And it would really create an opportunity then you know, have a more open discussion about truly getting input from the public, which actually terrifies a lot of people on what the country really should be doing. There's a, I mean, one, that's a very Ray Dalio sort of like radical transparency at Bridgewater premise. I love that. And then to, to your last part, one of my favorite quotes has always been, uh, I think it was H.L. Mencken, the sage of Baltimore, democracy is the theory that the common man knows what he wants, give it to him good and hard. Uh, and that was what, like 1910, 1920? Yeah. Uh, insert, insert the meme of Emperor Palpatine, I <laughs> love democracy, right? Yeah, right? There's a lot of issues exactly, what I just said, but right. I love that discussion, right? That's so, cool. And there's, there's a corollary, corollary to that where as a cyber industry, we all said, you know, we can't do voting on mobile phones. And that's sort of like, we can't go to the moon. Like the, the, to, to, to say that we can't design an app to do that is like a failure. Meanwhile, we're delivering our banks. I was just gonna say, my bank has no idea with me yanking yeah, 10 grand out. Exactly, yeah. so, so I think there's things we could do better as a cyber industry to kind of help democracy and help that core and bring the country together and less about, you know, doing that, so yeah. That would be, but you said you had two questions though. Yes, yeah, so that was the part? first one. Second one's the second <laughs> one's a layup. Okay. Right. Second one is the, they make me ask one structured question every episode and mm -hmm. this is the one and it's always the, all right, when the work is done, what does that look like? You know, they want to travel the world, want to rent an RV and drive across America, want to live in the mountains alone. I always joke about sort of my wife laughs because I want like a big outdoor kitchen. I want a river with the dogs, the kids, and hopefully grandkids running around and it to be just a big plot of land that's simple and quiet with a lot of food. Um, what's that look like for, for you and Cindy? So the work's never been done for us. And, but still right now we've, you know, we got ATVs and some land and we fish, we travel, we got two wonderful, wonderful boys. And, you know, we don't have to be doing Google Tech Adventures, right? But the reality is when I was CEO of Pennable, I was still Cubmaster. Uh, Cindy was a den leader. We were still very involved in, in all sorts of social and like church activities. I tell every one of my founders at their companies that their family's first. You can't work 100 hours a week. You, if you want to, you can, right? But you certainly can work for, if you're smart enough to reverse engineer Chinese malware, you should be smart enough to be home for dinner, right? To make time for, the, for your kid's place, to have a family, to visit a parent. And, and you don't have to wait for the work to be done to, to live your life. Life's first. It's a great answer. Ron, as always, thank you for spending the time. Appreciate the generosity. And uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in. Keep things loud on All Quiet on the Second Front. <laughs> Perfect. All right. This is Saved Rounds. Join me, my favorite technologist, Second Front compatriot, Enrique Odi. 
as we cut through the cacophony of the news cycle and reload your arsenal to annihilate defense tech takes. Let the fun begin. All right, uh, Senor Odie, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, SCSP. So the Special Competitive Studies Project released uh, Offset X strategy paper. Um, provides sort of a map for closing a deterrence gap, building sort of future joint force, um, some of the challenges that DOD is facing, one, sort of the character of warfare, two, sort of how they translate capabilities into strategy, into sort of that force to face that sort of future character of war, you know, sort of as you sit on the outside now, but looking back at, at your career, you know, 20 something years, both as the China foreign area officer and as a sort of leading technologist on when we talk about significant changes to force design, the pessimist in me is always like, man, that sounds like 800 slides and like four rotations of a staff officer in the Pentagon and no real change. What do you see? You think this is going to drive change? Are you excited? Um, where are you sit on the spectrum here? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it is really hard to say. I'm excited about the potential of that this could drive change. I think a lot of the stuff coming out of SESP, it's, it is actually pretty groundbreaking in some of the thought processes and some of the solutions that they're putting forward. But like you said, you know, change the DOD is some staff officer with 800 slides. So the question is, are those staff officers going to read this and will enough of them promote some of these ideas to actually get it across the finish line? That I'm not sure about but there are some ideas in here that are already being considered in the Department of Defense and obviously the Marine Corps and their force design, I think is driving a lot of this change, honestly, which is, uh, that's a whole other topic. It's like yeah. the Marines actually leading the, the initiative on how we drive the warfare in the Indo-Pacific. But I think SCSP has some great ideas for us to discuss. And uh, I think some of them are going to get implemented and it's going to be powerful. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's, we're definitely at an inflection point where if you think about traditional sort of industrial age notions of leadership, you know, very top down, very linear, very, um, your senior superior officers sort of have all the information, it all flows through them, all the control flows through them versus sort of what Alvin Toffler would call a third wave leader, which is more, you know, sort of diffusion, kind of letting go to enable greater impact. I think we're at a spot there where we could actually put some organizational design behind that, as we're seeing in a lot of things these days. Like the push is going to be to go towards an extreme, and there's got to be some sort of compromise because you've got to still have span of control. So I'm, I'm excited. I think about the sort of changing notions of leadership. You know, a younger sort of more technologically native sort of warrior class, warrior generation, which we didn't have during my time and your time. It was just coming in during the tail end of my time. Well, the big challenge is going to be sort of what do we do with it, right? Yeah, well, let's jump to that. The, I yeah. think what you're bringing up is an interesting part of what this report calls out. And so, again, the, the big report you mentioned already, it's like, let's look at like how we look at deterrence moving forward, how we keep from having a war in the 2025 to 2030 timeframe and kind of set a new uh, competitive model moving forward versus a model that will drive into conflict. And one of the things the report talks about is how the Chinese view war and so they talk about moving from industrialized warfare to informatized warfare, which is kind of what we used to call network-centric warfare, yep. into this idea of intelligentized warfare, which is warfare using things like AI and big data and swarming drones, that sort of thing. And it talks about that where the Chinese have built an entire warfare model explicitly targeting the U.S. Usually people talk about, oh, how do we build our own swarming drones? Great. Yeah, this report mentions that. But what it also talks about it has a whole section on what are the U.S.'s asymmetric advantages. 
And it talks about the fact that we have allies and partners in the region. It talks about that we have great relations with our civilian entities for logistics. But one thing it talks about, which is what you mentioned, is the idea that we have decades of combat experience with a joint force in which authority is delegated down to the lowest level to make command decisions. That is something in this kind of fast moving warfare you have to have. You're not gonna be able to do centralized control and centralized execution when you when things are moving at such high speeds and, and high scale. And so the really great read if anyone looks into it, talking about the asymmetric advantage and saying, let's build off of our own asymmetric advantages versus sitting there just focusing on the adversaries asymmetric advantages in a few areas like technology. And so that's something it calls out. And I think it's it's huge for force design. Yeah, no, I, I, I'll i echo that. And uh, I think a lot of the things that I saw as a, as a second first lieutenant or a junior captain, hopefully promulgate sort of the broader force through this type of a push to your point on sort of decentralizing down at lowest level and using technology to augment. So uh, we'll leave this one both optimistic, which is a, a strange place for us to be. Well, let me add one more piece of optimism. The floor is yours, sir. One more. This is one of the only reports that has really emphasized software. And I'd love to say that I have like a little tiny bit of input into that, but it talks about tactical level software development, pushing software development to the field and accelerating the ATO process so we can get better technologies to the field faster. How often do you see something talking about Chinese warfare, high-end fights talking about software developers in a tactical unit and ATOs. We're gonna we're gonna dig back into that. We're gonna dig back <laughs> into that in an AQ2F episode. Um, awesome. Thanks, brother. Wow, look at you. You made it to the end. Thanks for listening. Hope you learned something. Don't forget to leave a passive aggressive review. It wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about me, Second Front. Stay weird. <laughs>